Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Welcome, Stan. Welcome, Jonathan, to the show. I'm excited for our conversation. Let's start off by understanding what Unbridled is and what the company actually does, because I, I understand that there are a lot of companies underneath this Unbridled umbrella. So I'd like to hear a little bit more, and then um, I want to dive deeper into the story and the path to where you got to today. It's always a complicated thing to explain because there's actually, well, we did 23 tax returns this year, and it's kind of this idea of exploring what we call adjacent opportunity is how we got here. But basically to start with uh, Unbridled uh, Solutions actually was the first company and it's engaged in live events. So we did about 2019, about $100 million in revenue on live events across the globe. Along the way, we started uh, taking a look at our, our business culture and looking at the next generation a little differently and started realizing that there was hidden talent there and their identity. We started looking at uh, individual's identity next to our balance sheet, if you will. And we would say, well, gosh, we're buying $5 million in travel. Do I have someone that I could start a travel company around? Or we're buying $2 million for the corporate gifts. Could I do that? Or we need video services. And, and so we started marrying this idea of adjacent opportunity with adjacent human capital and literally starting businesses uh, around them as a way to you know provide a pathway to legacy into the future for them and us. Now, you you started with the live events business. Was that right. did that spin out of your experience like working in hospitality and in that type of field or how did you decide to get yeah. into that? Yeah, I uh, I started out as a dishwasher uh, at Marriott. I was horrible in school and Spent the first uh, 11 years of my career, so 16 to, let's say, 27 in the heart of the house, and uh, got into sales with Marriott, traveled a lot, then uh, got recruited by Ritz-Carlton to open up two hotels in Hawaii, the Ritz-Carlton Manalani and the Ritz-Carlton Kapalua. And, And so hospitality was always in my genes. And in fact, I was raised overseas, uh, so that that was um, part of hospitality as well. And so, in '93, I went to what's called the agency side, which basically was helping corporations plan events. And then in 2001, we started Unbridled Solutions. Now, being in the live events business, and then COVID hits. I mean, no nobody saw that coming, and I'm sure you didn't see that coming. And it's probably detrimental to your business. Let's talk about that. And, and how did you pivot that and revisit your strategy to survive during this time? Sure. So there's a little bit of prequel to that conversation. When we started Unbridled, uh, we wanted to do good by doing well. So we came up with this, basically a formula approach to distributions on our profits. And we basically said our first 20% of our profits, were going to go to charity our second 20% of profits uh, were going to stay in each company and the balance 60% would go to the shareholders. So if you can sort of fast forward that uh, every company that we start has that same model and you can fast forward that for 20 years, essentially we've been saving up 20%. When COVID hit, we were able to actually take a step back and respond instead of react. And so I think it was like March 5th, we lost 50% of our revenue in one week. And so just wholesale, we went from 100 million to 50 million overnight, you know, that that sort of keeps you up at night and your head spinning. But 
because we had this nice nest egg of, of retained earnings, we literally just took a, a deep breath and said, okay, our customers are going to have a real problem communicating with their people. They still need to get their people together. What's the appropriate response? And so we, we took and, and, and we divided our company into three key lanes. One was offense. So Tim and, and a couple of developers we had were like, you have to build a virtual platform and we have to convert one of our mansions, which is just down the street here, to be a virtual back of house studio that you would see production studio and go. <laughs> and so they did that and came back within within 60 days and had an MVP, minimal viable product. Group two was really Diane and Scott hey, we're pivoting to a new economy. We need to make sure that our head our headcount is appropriate. So get rid of any non-essential expense and redeploy the people that we can to this new economy. And so that happened. And then the third we call special teams, and that was the finance team. Find out about the PPP and the EIDL and all those loans, and let's try to grab whatever's available to us so that we can honor keeping our team members and, and we can stay afloat. And so those all sort of culminated in June. You know, Meanwhile, we're going through our retained earnings. And so from June until the end of January, we've operated over 125 full service uh, virtual events from 50 to 10,000 people. As a, as a business owner, saving up that rainy day fund and, and being generous with the first 20%, I think really made the difference because we were able to respond out of strength, not react out of fear, right? Sure. Absolutely. And that that's smart. And I want to dive a little bit more into that and dive into this idea of pivoting because for most businesses, they can become you know petrified and just paralyzed mm-hmm. during these times. And um, I want to hear more about your story. But before I go down that path, I, I want to talk a little bit with Jonathan here because Jonathan's on the show. And what's interesting is I, I like that mantra, do good by doing well. Yeah. And you, know, you represent, I guess, the, the older generation in your business. And you probably realize strategically that you need to, you know, bring in the newer generation to continue doing good by doing well and just to build the next generation of leadership. So let's talk with Jonathan here. Jonathan, what do you do for the company and how has your role progressed over time here? Yeah, so uh it's I would say progress would be the the right word because <laughs> when I joined the team or I met Stan, I guess it's just coming up on six years this month that I've been a part of the the unbridled brand. And I came in on the event side because that was kind of the, the bread and butter of Unbridled that had been my background. And really, I'd say meeting Stan as as a business mentor and my boss, I, I'd say the best way to describe it was when he interviewed me the first time. He said, hey, it sounds like you're an entrepreneur. So if I hire you, what's going to stop you leaving in two years and doing your own thing? And I was like, oh boy, you know, that's, that's not what you want to hear in an interview. And I said, yeah, you're right. I am an entrepreneur. I do want to run businesses. Uh, but I'll I'll kick butt for you for the next two years. And Stan's response was fascinating. And then what I've seen over the last six years is the fruition of that response. It was, if you come and work for me, I'll give you so much opportunity, you'll never want to leave. Mm-hmm. And so I actually started on the, the event side, uh, worked with one of the Unbridled Solutions clients out of California, traveled with them, but really alongside of it. And I, I think this goes to the kind of the brilliance of the Unbridled model of business was he saw an entrepreneurial gift in me and understood what he was talking about, that human capital, that eventually there's going to be a business opportunity that comes around that he could put on my plate so we could start expanding the Unbridled brand. So over the last six years, when when I started, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Stan, but I think there was four companies. And like he mentioned, there was 23 tax returns this year. So it's been a, a pretty incredible expansion over the last six years. And so for myself, I, I now represent one of the business owners or one of the managing partners of Unbridled Wealth, uh, which is a company that's been around about four years now. So how do you feel empowered in your role? Uh, you know, working with somebody who has lots of ideas, they're very entrepreneurial, they have a lot of experience, you know, and then you come on board and and you're younger, right? And you have ideas and you're you're ambitious. You may lack the experience that Stan has, you know, because he's just He's been around for so long. How do you feel empowered in your role? And what kind of takeaways have you seen from Stan's leadership that can be passed along to other people? Yeah, I would say probably the biggest thing is, uh, especially if we take 2020, this is a a great example as a small business owner, you naturally go towards fear to contracting to 
just trying to survive and get by. And then witnessing Stan and the response of the unbridled family of, hey, no, we're actually going to pivot. Let's look for new streams of income. Uh, let's look for ways we can make a change and do business differently instead of trying to hunker down and make it through. And really, I, I think that sets up businesses to not just survive, but thrive during pandemics or recessions or downturns in the economy. And so I think having a, a Stan Boas as a, a, a business mentor that I know I can go and talk to. And if it's like, a, hey, where, where do we move in this environment? And what's amazing is Unbridled Wealth, we've actually grown during 2020. Being in the finance sector and personal finance sector, we've hired not only front of house, but back of house people as well. Um, oh, that's and- great. Yeah. And I would say it's probably a testament to the years of preparation in storing up 20% and being ready for the season of battle when the battle comes. Okay. I can add some flavor to that. I think the modern day business is about survival of the most adaptable, not the survival of the most fittest. And so one of the things that we do for your audience as a practical sense is every year we go away in November and we do what's called scenario planning. And we try to pick the most outrageous scenarios that could be business killers. And in November of 2019, we went away and we actually came up with the the top three. There was hundreds of them, but we just kept chipping away, chipping away, chipping away until we came up to the top three business killers were number one, the hotels cut commissions, which they did. (laughs) Number, Number two. Uh, that there was going to be massive civil unrest and people wouldn't want to travel, which is happening. And number three, that there could be a, a global pandemic. Now, you know, that's five months before it really impacted our business. But what was so powerful about that is it was already in our psyche that we needed to kill the old method of business if one of these three things happened. And so when they started manifesting, we already knew the lane that we were supposed to pick. So we didn't spend a lot of time you know, debating on where we needed to go. We spent a lot of time debating on how we needed to get there, but, and and who was going to get there with us, but we kind of already knew the direction. And so we do that every year. And I would really recommend, actually, I would recommend that businesses throw their five-year plan out the window and, and do just 12 month planning, but do, you know, critical scenario planning, because the speed of business is so dynamic now that planning five years out, it's to us, it's almost irrelevant just executing the next 12 months wisely is, is, is a really good strategy for us. Yeah. And that's smart. And I, I like what you said there, Stan, because, you know, I agree with that. I mean, trying to create a five-year plan, like it could be a fun exercise, but I mean, how can you plan five years out into the future? And I agree. It's about this agility and adaptability, which really allows companies to be resilient and to endure. And I, I really like what you said there about when you're thinking about what, what are some major things that can really disrupt the business or what are things that can kill the business? You know, I'd always say to clients and stuff, I'd say, let's pretend an employee was disgruntled and left the business and he wanted to destroy the business, bankrupt the business. What would he do? Right. Mm-hmm. And then they start, you know, it's a similar type of thing where it's like, oh, well, first I would go after these customers or I do this or I, you know, position this. And, and when you start thinking about those things, I think it can really prepare your mindset for the unexpected. So I, I really like that. I mean, we knew that the customer was going to be in the same situation as us. They had to find a way to connect with their people. So even though it was going to be in a live event format, we knew that there would be more and more pressure on content and delivery of content as as we became you know into a, a virtual environment. And in fact, we started recognizing that about five years ago when we started bringing on board storytellers, bringing on board our own producers, bringing on board our own graphics team. We knew that the act of you know travel to live events and serving customers wasn't what was really valuable. What was really valuable is helping customers change behavior and you needed to own the content delivery of that. And so we had already had the content delivery vehicle in place, the team in place. Um, so we just went from a backstage in Las Vegas to a backstage in, in Denver that, that reaches globally. Sure. Now, do you think it's possible for companies to pivot too quickly, too prematurely, where it feels like they may be all over the place? Maybe it's not a situation as severe as a pandemic, but do you feel like people can just have like strategy ADD? Yeah, I mean, that's one of those like Selah moments. That's a that's a comment to really think on. Absolutely is the answer. 
I think that you really need to be in step with your customers and the value you bring as being in step and providing solutions when they need it on time. And so, especially in something like live events, you know, that, that's been done over and over again, um, understanding their needs when they need it and being able to adapt and produce it. I mean, if you think we wrote a virtual platform in 60 days and it's had almost no major issues and we're not a tech company, <laughs> right. that'll tell you a lot about us listening to what the customer needed in terms of a minimal viable product, right? And sure. they needed it now. Yeah, no, and that makes sense. And and I like that really keep in touch and close with uh, customers is, is really critical because yeah. customer preferences shift, you know, buying behavior shifts without it. Yeah, your business model can quickly become outdated. I have another comment that that I think that was probably going to bring us back to Jonathan um, that will be relevant to this and sort of the business as a whole. You see, we believe that in, in at Unbridled, we're a collaboration of destinies. And um, that means that I have a destiny, our brand has a destiny, and Jonathan has a destiny. And that there's a reason that Jonathan comes in our path and we come in Jonathan's path. And that that great companies will seek that truth out and seek, you know, what Jonathan, why are you here? And what is the unique contribution you have to this brand? In Jonathan's case, it was around finance and wealth management. It wasn't even in, a, in, in an adjacent industry other than we knew we needed to manage our wealth better. Mm-hmm. And so creating a relationship where you're able to adapt, there's that word again, adapt to the individual identities of teammates and create solutions around who they are has been a really, really good strategy. And so when we're adapting to what our customer needs, most of the time, the people that can do that job are already in-house if we just know who they are and what their skill sets are and, and, sure. and their identity around that. And so that's how we kind of navigate. We prioritize identity over solution, probably in relationship over solution. And inside of those things, we actually create the solution that the customer needs. Yeah. And, and I imagine that most people in your organization, they buy into that ethos and into that culture of change and adaptability. But I imagine that, you know, some people probably don't like it. I mean, when you're, when you're sitting there and you're having discussions and saying, Hey, we're going to do this radical pivot. I mean, I'm sure that impacts people's jobs or you start new ventures or whatever it may be. How do you keep the team aligned and how do you ensure that there's not like obstacles within the organization that prevent it from adapting and, and being really agile. That's the war every day. <laughs> um, I, I think that, you know, we, in January, we spent a lot of time uh, studying mitosis, you know, the birth and division of cells. And so, you know, you have one cell and it divides, it comes to, and then they divide enough and it becomes multiplication. And then somewhere along the line, the multiplication becomes um, chaotic and there's a requirement for those cells to assimilate under a new call. And in the process of that, that's actually when the the, uh, baby's head and spinal cord are formed, the cells realign and create something new that's bigger than the individual cells. Well, in that process of assimilation, some just die out, some just quit, some don't want to do it anymore. So in the context of business, uh, you have to let the people go that want to go. <laughs> sure. You have to try to save the people that that are mission critical. Uh, and you have to give them a new vision, uh, something to assimilate around that they can sink their teeth in and, and have the option to buy in or not buy in. And and so, you know, pivoting to virtual was a massive contraction for the live events group, but it added so much room for production, media, video, wealth that the team could either say, no, that's not for me. I'm going to get off the train. And we're like, okay. But other people were like, yeah, I want to go try something new and, and giving them the opportunity to do that. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Absolutely. And so, which, which comes back to Jonathan over here, you know, you come into the business, you're on the, the live event side of the business, you know, what made you 
think about pivoting and um, going down, you know, the wealth management side. I know you have a finance background, but um, talk to me more about this journey. Yeah, I mean, I, I think one of the things that's been ingrained that I've witnessed in the the unbridled culture is uh, being a part of something bigger than yourself, and uh, having flexibility as a core value of the companies and also as the team members of the unbridled brand. And so, you know, I, I think there's always the risk of, especially during a 2020 and times are changing and people are pivoting and you, you look at the company that's made these radical shifts and you're like, what did you do so we can do it? And a lot of this happened way before, right? The preparation of having people that are willing to uh, make the jump and have a radical change and not been thrown off too much by it came years prior. And so for me coming into Unbridled, it was with an understanding of, okay, there's a mentality here, which is, you know, in the Jim Collins analogy, maybe you're the right person on the bus in the wrong seat. So let's help you find your destiny or your lane or the path that you need to run in. So when I joined Unbridled, it was, well, just sit in this seat for now because we don't know where you're supposed to sit. And maybe that seat wasn't even opened up yet. And over a, I would say probably a three or four year period, it was kind of bouncing from seat to seat, really discovering, okay, what's my lane? What's my passion? Where can I add the most value to the company? And knowing that sometimes we have to be comfortable within that ambiguity until you can find like, okay, this is my lane and get your head down. What I would see was Jonathan's natural equilibrium would, would, he would keep adding value financially. Like he could program websites and all that stuff. But the big turning point was we had finished this old mansion, which is our headquarters, uh, Grant Street Mansion. And we bought it and restored it and had moved into it. Jonathan came to me and said, hey, do you know about historic tax credits? And I'm like, yeah, whatever. And hadn't heard about it. And I said, you know, go research it. And he researched it and took it from the beginning all the way through and actually wound up creating about $930,000 worth of windfall in tax credits that actually launched an entire real estate brand that is a whole new vertical for us. But that was this thing that we could go back and say, I now know what your lane is. And then that was sort of the birthplace of of him being given opportunity inside of finance and wealth that ultimately you know, he, he becomes a managing partner of the wealth company. And he's, he's too modest to even say this or, or too humble, but like, he's, he's the top guy in, in, in the region for, for our carrier. And so here's a guy that started out in events and is a managing member in a wealth management company. And is the top guy in the region, just in the matter of five years. So, and that's interesting. I mean, you've hired a lot of people, Stan, as you hire people, especially the younger generation, are there certain attributes that you look for? Or, because you know, people can look good on paper. I, I've interviewed a ton of people. They look great on paper. They even interview well. And then you know, they're not those like value maximizers that you're referring to. How do you find good talent? Well, um, we have an amazing uh, recruiting team led by Nina. But uh, I would say it's hidden in the interview process. I think the average person goes through seven interviews and some of them are skill-based, some of them are personality. And I'm usually the, the last one. And my job uh, has nothing to do with their skill set. It's actually has everything to do with, can I see who they're becoming? Can I get a window into that? And can we as a company help them get there? And so in that, there's a whole bunch of series of questions around just trying to figure out, is their head and their heart connected? So is there good neural pathways there so that they can feel and think what's their sense of family? Are they social or are they self-preservation? You know, and then if I can get a glimpse of who they're becoming and those neural pathways aren't aligned and I can visualize them in our company that we could help get them there, then um, they're probably a right fit. And then we usually bring them in and they kind of flounder for like six months until they find their footing. So we don't give them massive job descriptions or large to-do lists. We actually just watch them and they'll find their own equilibrium in that first six months to a year. That's great. And, and for you, Jonathan, what advice would you have for some of the younger listeners who you know, they're, they're trying to figure out their career. They're trying to figure out what the heck they even want to do, right? Some people, they go and get degrees in finance and then they go into a totally different field. What advice do you have for them when they're looking for a company or are there certain attributes of the company or is it just, you know, find a job and, you know, just grind or like, what would you say? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think when I was 
Uh, so it was in 2014 and I was like, I've got to get a job. And for me personally, I was a classic millennial back then. I didn't want to go work for the man, but I knew if it was a company or a person that had a vision that was greater than me that I could serve it. And so hearing about Stan Bullis and hearing about Unbridled, I specifically pursued this organization for that reason. And so I would say to to younger listeners that if you're looking for a job, find someone that you can serve, that you can serve their vision. I've always been a huge fan of like, if you're going to have people that will follow and trust you and try and add value to your vision, first, you've got to sew into somebody else's. And so my, my joining Unbridled was, how can I make Stan Bullis and Unbridled a success? And by giving myself to that, it wasn't about building my own reputation or my own skill set. It was just about how can I add value? And I constantly looked for ways to do that. And then sure enough, it, it comes back around where you get your own opportunities. And so I think just trying to find a job, a company, a person that you believe in, that you can sow into and add value with all of your heart. Well, let's talk a little bit about millennials. So you mentioned that there's a stigma out there. You know, they're entitled, they're, you know, they're lazy. They want to come in and be, yeah. you know, in management, you know, after a few weeks, whatever it is there, there's all this stuff that I'm sure you've heard the rhetoric What's your response to that? Do you agree with that? Do you disagree? Do you see it differently? I think uh, I've seen both sides of it. And I'm probably on the older side of the millennial generation and, you know, was often apologetic about it. And I would say now I'm like, no, actually, there's probably a a passion in millennials where if they find something they believe in, they're going to be the best and the hardest workers. But there's probably a difference in that there's a great need to be a part of something bigger than themselves. And so I don't think millennials are lazy. Uh, I think this generation is, is brilliant and they can adapt and learn quickly. They just have to find something that they're willing to put the energy and effort into. And I, I think early on as really young going into the marketplace and they weren't finding that because it's the job at Starbucks or whatever it is. And so they put their energy elsewhere. But I think it's actually a brilliant generation. I think it's a channeling thing. I mean, I think, you know, in in my interviews, uh, it's one of the questions I ask, you know, close your eyes and tell me what your life looks like seven years from now. And so few of them have even thought that far ahead or even got a chance to dream into that. And those are sort of really revealing conversations. And so I think it's this issue of being stewarded, having access to so much uh, creative uh, sort of output it's, you know, I think it's the most creative generation I've ever seen. It's the fastest in terms of being able to, to produce output. It just has, hasn't been channeled effectively. And when you can align sort of their identity, their calling inside of a vocation, they're going to work harder and give you more, more output and more creativity and more time. You won't have to regulate that. If anything, you're going to have to regulate it that they're, they're spending too much time doing a certain activity. And so I think it's directive, not irresponsibility. Yeah. And it's, it's once they find their passion and that passion aligns with the purpose, then it's, you know, it's go time. So how important Jonathan are mentors for you and do people need mentors in your mind? Yeah, a hundred percent. I think it is one of the most important things. And I, I would say in, especially in business, one of the greatest divides is, you know, baby boomers to millennials where I think because there's been the advancement in technology and young CEOs who can make millions of dollars and have boomers working for them, it's almost shifted where it's no longer you have to have a mentor who's gone ahead of you in business to to raise you up. But I think it's still so essential. How do you even get a mentor? I mean, do you just, do you go up to somebody and say, hey, will you be my mentor? Circle this piece of paper, yes or no? Kind of like back in the day with dating or is it, uh, (laughs) you know, and then once you get a mentor, what is it? Do you say, hey, you got to answer the phone every time I call you or we're going to have coffee, you know, once a week or is it less formal than that? Talk to me a little bit about the process. Yeah. Now you're making me think we should start some kind of a mentoring app or something. (laughs) (laughs) I, I would say it's like just keeping an eye out for the people around you. You know, I think it does have to be natural, but I've even as a young man in his mid thirties, I've had people come up to me and ask me, Hey, will you mentor me? There's been times I've said, no, I'm sorry. I don't have the bandwidth. And there's been a time I've said, yes. And I, I would say with Stan and me, because he's definitely been certainly the most profound mentor of mine in the last seven years, uh, it was a, I started serving him first. And I think he gave me more attention and time and energy and would answer my questions. 
And so finding somebody that you can serve is really a great way about going to find a mentor. Hey, what yeah. do you for me is saying, hey, I, I want to serve you and bless you. And they will respond in kind. Yeah. And I, I agree. And I, I love that. It's like that start with service first, yeah. because I, I think that's where people make the mistake because oftentimes they approach it from a selfish standpoint, right? Like even in the job interview, sometimes that selfishness could come out where it's like, what's in it for me? What about me? What about this? How's this going to impact me? And it, you know, I think people need to be going into situations, whether it's a new job or whether you're working with customers or, you know, I don't care if you're in sales, finance, HR, whatever it is, but looking at people and saying, how can I add value to you? How can I make you successful? How can I bring you more business? How can I help the company grow? And then when you do that, naturally everything else is going to follow. Yeah. I I've seen that in my business of, I always, and I think that's maybe a personality trait as well. I just, I love to add value. I love Mm -hmm. to help where I can, but I, I would say I've ingrained that in our team of like, Hey, add value first. Don't worry about what you're trying to accomplish. Look for ways that you can add value in their lives, in a financial plan, in whatever it is they're doing and go above and beyond. Like so see person, it comes back around and it's unbelievable how much it comes back around when you have that mentality of I'm going to add value to your life first. Well, let's talk about value and let's talk about your business that you head up. What kind of trends are you seeing in the world of finance? You know, whether it's corporate finance or or personal wealth management, like what types of things are you seeing out there and what is your take on the recent movements in the marketplace? Yeah, this is a kind of a scary unknown territory. I think if you look historically, you can read historically, there's there's black swan events that happen every decade or so and there's ups and downs in economies. But the, the market itself, meaning the, the stock market, meaning the real estate market, it hasn't reacted as you would assume it would to 2020. Sure. <laughs> There's the printing of money, the stimulus packages, the changing of presidency, the unemployment rates, and we've, we're still at an all-time high in the market. And so I, I've found that a lot of people are very nervous and cautious. I think there's a good group of people that are sitting on the sidelines and waiting to see what happens over the next 12 months. Sure. And I, and I know that, you know, you, you have to be careful about what type of financial advice you give. I, I get that. But if I'm sitting here thinking, you know, from a personal standpoint and I'm looking and saying, look, the stock market just hit a record high today and you know, it's, it, it continues to climb. And you look at some of these valuations that they don't make sense, you know, from a price PE ratio and just a cash flow and intrinsic value perspective. So you have that, right? And then I look at bonds and I'm like, okay, well, bonds, if interest rates go up, you're going to have some serious problems and interest rates have to go up at some point, right? I mean, they can't go much lower. So bonds don't look very attractive. I look at real estate and trying to find real estate just in Colorado. I mean, you have to go in there and offer more than asking price. And I was just in San Diego this last weekend and you know, people are going in and offering a hundred grand more just to get the house because it's selling in one day. So real estate is kind of questionable. So you have all these different things going on in the marketplace. And if you're sitting on money, what do you do with that? Right. Do you, do you just hide it underneath your mattress? Right? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, it's, it's a, it, it is the question. And it's actually been something we've been talking about for the last couple of years. I think everybody assumes, I can't say knows, but would assume that taxes are going up, that interest is going up, that there's going to be high levels of inflation. And so it, it's massively different when it comes to your business versus personal, right? So like within personal finance and creating a plan, First off, it's a create a plan, like have a plan. Don't just kind of, let's just see what happens over the next couple of years and I'll leave my money in this mutual fund and and carry on down the road, which is what 98% of people do. And I I think our major focus has been, okay, let's create a plan. Uh, I'm mostly looking for making sure people have a healthy balance in in post-tax environments, not just pre-tax. In terms of real estate, big difference of of maintaining large debt within your primary residence i actually think it's a great thing because if, if inflation does hit that large debt is being reduced each year but sure. it's going to give access to cash today if the market comes down and then for us we we do a lot of strategies around what's called the infinite banking concept i won't get into it today but it's uh, a post-tax strategy which gives us guaranteed growth and access through cash value whole life insurance And so that's been a major strategy for us, not just this year, but last five years. It's actually okay to sit on some cash and not be enjoying the gains of what we're seeing today in anticipation that 
you're going to be able to jump in when the market is down or on its way down and get some much better deals. Because I'm with you. I'm not buying a rental property in Denver this year. Sure. <laughs> yep. And like yeah. Warren, and Warren Buffett, you know, is known for saying, you know, be fearful when people are greedy and be greedy when people are fearful. And I, I think that, you know, goes along with that, the whole point. Totally agree. I think a couple of things. One, we're the first time in history, our debts in our country, our unfunded liabilities uh, exceed our assets. And so I, I think, you know, Jonathan's point about the market is salient in that it's decoupled from reality. <laughs> <laughs> and so sure. it, it, what's really happening, what the market is doing are two different things. And so if I just looked at the market, I would say it probably has five, maybe 10% upside at best, but it probably has a 50% downside. And mm-hmm. so where do I want to put my portfolio of money like to, to maybe eke out an extra 5% and catch the upside or to protect against what could be the, the downfall? And so for me personally, it's a, it's a mixture of three things. One is I want to own real estate. Two, I want to occupy that real estate. So our businesses are inside of those real estate holdings. Three, I want to have cash, meaning guaranteed liquidity, but I want to put it inside a banking strategy that gives me guaranteed returns and a death benefit. And so when you couple those three, because in an inflation or a devaluation of currency, the asset's so much more valuable than hard cash right? Because your currency isn't going to be worth as much. And so sure. leveraging those two in a healthy way is is really smart. Absolutely. Speaking of profits, let's talk about this 2020-60 thing that you have, Stan, with your businesses. What's the genesis of that? And talk more about how long you've been doing that. Is that successful? Or there's yeah. sometimes where you cheat a little bit and you say, okay, actually it's 10 this year and 30 and da, da, da. Or are you pretty rigid on the 2020-60? Yeah, I mean, that's that's uh, that's that's always a, a moment of truth question for me. I had a, a pretty major encounter with faith in 2000, and basically, it's embedding your ties and offerings in the first fruits of the company. It came out of a real broken place, and so we never deviate from it. Any company that we're touched with, we give 20% of our first fruits. And I have so many examples of an example would be, you know, when COVID hit, we actually overfunded it and created a $200,000 assistance fund for people in our industry. Why? Because we've always had great success in sowing seeds of favor in times of famine. It has never disappointed us. When there was famine, we were always like, the first thing you want to do is go sow seeds. So basically, when each company contributes it into the nonprofit, it kind of acts like a donor advice fund where the profits come in. And then we go engage the owners of those businesses and say, what's your territory and what do you want to make an impact on? And we'll develop programs. We prefer not to send it to whatever Red Cross, great organization, but we prefer to have um, immediate impact. So they, each business has a say in where their, where their dollars get spent. The second 20% just basically came up uh, out of a strategy uh, around times of plenty and times of famine where the strategy was uh, storing up one fifth for times of famine. And it just seemed like a good idea. And I had no idea. We just kept tucking away 20% for the last 20 years until I really needed it. (laughs) And now it literally that second 20% was tested in, in 2020. And it literally got us through some of the most uh, hard decisions we could ever make. And then the balance 60%, we're not sheepish about shareholders doing well. They should get a return on their investment. And so every year we bring our profits in, we take the 40% off the top, and then we distribute the balance 60%. The 20 that stays in the company is our CapEx stuff. So if the company does good, our shareholders do good. Um, If the company doesn't do good, then the shareholders don't do so good. Essentially, all of our base compensations at that that higher level are all common rated, and they're all way below market, meaning at any time someone could leave and go get a higher paying job working for someone else, but they stay in it because we're all on the same footing. And if their company does well, they do really well. Jonathan had a great year this year, best year of his life. That's great. So what do you do with the 20% to social? Like what types of things are you involved in and what are you really passionate about? Oh man. So we have a, we have a a group home for women and youth in crisis. We have 
the COVID assistance fund. We pay uh, 50% of our team members therapy. And any given point in time, we have 40% of our company uh, just working on getting better. And we open those dollars out externally for people that are having a hard time in their family, whether it's family, marriage, or, you know, we're, we're ultra focused on, on the human element and, and making society better through transforming families. And so, you know, I think at the end of the day, when you talk about legacy, the most significant thing I think I've done as a leader is making those funds available to, to families that are hurting because, well, we're actually making better families or helping make better families and that will last for generations. And sure. And so, yeah. No, and I love that. I mean, cause that's when I created Cultivar, that was my big thing. You know, I, I, I love business like people love football. Right. And the reason why mm-hmm, I love business is because you know, it can impact people's lives to your, your very point. You know, our, our purpose statement here at Cultivar is to elevate people's lives through better business. And I believe that, you know, we are stewards of these resources and business, you know, the business is a vehicle to earn profits, which can help build families, right? It starts with employees and shareholders and our community and everything else. And I love that you have set such a great example with that. And I like the second 20% because so many companies, they just strip out the cash, right? They just strip out the cash. And in good years, they, they take a, a lot in distributions and dividends. And then bad years come and sometimes they don't survive or they struggle. And then, you know, ultimately it's caught up in their working capital and their vendors have to pay the price, you know, for all the distributions that were, were taken in the past. So I, I love that. I think that's very smart and a great model to follow. Yeah, you know, when we put that 20% in the company, this is where my destiny intersects with Jonathan's. We put it inside this IBC infinite banking. And what that does is it generates a guaranteed return that also triggers uh, a a giant death benefit. So if you can imagine the death benefits kind of thrown into the process. And so not only is that 20% planning for today, it's planning for a liquidation event when I die or the partner dies. And then what happens is, is the death benefit triggers a buy sell. The buy sell exits my family and turns over the business into the next generation from a cash rich point of view. And so, so all of that, I mean, that 20% is really, really powerful inside the company because it's basically dealing with the transfer of wealth into the next generation. Yeah. And it provides opportunities for them to you know, grow and to lead businesses and do a ton of things because you strip out all that cash and it strips out opportunity as well. That's right. That's right. So Jonathan, let's talk about your future. What are you most passionate about? What do you get excited about when you think about the future ahead of us? Yeah, I, I loved your comment because I would say I love finance like people like football. Uh, <laughs> even after watching Brady crush the Chiefs last night. Yeah. Uh, so. I, I love working with families and with business owners around finance because uh, I think it's a super tangible way that you can touch families. Mm-hmm. And I'm seeing a common thread with all three of us of where as it, or if not more concerned with having an impact around us as we are with a bottom line profit for a business. And I've found it to be a really tangible way that you can impact families, marriages, uh, father, son relationships, all of those kind of things is this subject called money. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And people's fear around it, shame around it, and lack of understanding. And so, so my passion is is really about raising up probably a a different breed in the financial services industry that is is somewhat counterculture to what the industry is like today. That isn't about greed and power and commission breath, but is about adding value and doing what's right by your clients. And so, my hope is that Unbridled Wealth will actually help be one of the influences that changes what the financial industry is like. So people don't just think Wall Street and you know stockbrokers and all of the things that come along with that, but they'll actually think about people who are trying to add value and come alongside families to help them become financially free and independent. Yeah. And I, I love that. I mean, because I'm unapologetic when it comes to finance, because the way that I look at it is when I think of helping businesses to become more profitable, right? That could come across as, of, you know, Steve, you're so capitalistic and um, right. all you care about is money. But here's the thing. It's, it's what you do with the profits. I mean, I tell people I want to make a ton of money. And the reason why I want to make a ton of money 
is because I have a ton of things that I want to do. I want to go, you know, down to South America. I'd love to, you know, start a school and teach business down there. I'd love to help people. All those things that I want to do, not things that I want to have, the things I want to do cost a lot of money. And therefore that's why I need to have this engine. And that's why I have this drive in, in the world to, you know, add value like you're talking about. So I have the resources to go impact people. I also think I had like this unhealthy relationship with money because we grew up, we didn't have a lot of money. Mm. My mom was, she's a single mom raising, you know, seven of us kids. So we just didn't have money. And, you know, for the longest time I had this like scarcity mindset, right? Like there was never enough. And it's all about like, you know, watch your pennies, right? Instead of turning that around to have an abundant mentality of saying mm -hmm. cutting costs is, is important, but you can only cut yourself to death so far, right? But it's actually, how do you get out there in the world and add value, right? That's right. what it comes down to. Like add right. more value to get more rather than, you know, thinking in scarcity terms and, and trying to contract and not add value, right? Just cut, cut, cut. Yeah, I, I think if I was to summarize then what my passion is, it would be helping people get out of that scarcity mentality. Mm -hmm. Because I think so many people alive today, they've learned or been taught that money is evil. I mean, we're seeing it in politics today and some of the statements that get made. It's the famous proverb, right? That money is the root of all evil. And that's not even correctly quoted. Sure. It's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so getting people out of that mentality where they're either afraid, ashamed, or don't want to touch money because it could somehow corrupt them and into a, wow, what a powerful tool it is to, to have the impact that you want to have. Absolutely. And in, in this last week, and I was with one of my good friends who's an entrepreneur and he was talking about his business and he was sharing with me how, you know, the, the building in which their business operates is appreciated, you know, quite a bit. And one of the partners that he was hooked up with said, Hey, look, now's the time. Let's sell this property. Let's cash out. I mean, you know, we could be walking away with a substantial amount of money. So I asked him, I said, well, what was your response? And he said, no way. That's crazy. And he's like, you sell the building, you sell the business, right? Cause his, his business is in the building. And I love that. And I thought that's so admirable because you know, at the end of the day, money, what utility does it have? Right? Like, let's say this business owner, he's sold out and walked away with a, a chunk of money. Then what, you know, you pay taxes on it, then you invest it, you probably squander some away. And, but the whole purpose of your existence to help people is gone because you sold that. Right. That's right. So That's right. I like what you're saying, Jonathan, and, and I like your, your passion and, and the purpose that you have there, because I think you're right. There's so much opportunity for people with that mindset to go out there, to add value, to think about money in a different way, to, to be able to do like a 20-20-60 type model where you know, you're, you're tithing to communities and building up people first, and then still having a successful life yourself, but using money for the greater good. So I love that. Okay. So Stan, let's come full circle. What type of advice do you have in closing about being resilient, being agile, and, and thinking more long-term like you've done with you know, your businesses and, and mentoring your employees and giving them the opportunity to succeed, bring all this together and, and uh, share your, your final thoughts. Yeah. I mean, there's a, there's a book out there called leading from the emergent future that basically says when you understand who you are and you start cooperating with your future, your future starts cooperating with you. It's not just any book. It's out of the Sloan School of Business and MIT. And so my closing, my closing thoughts are just that inside your business are the people that are aligning with your destiny. They hold the keys to the solutions that you need to come up with to meet modern day business. It's your job as a leader to live six to eight months ahead of the cycle, like our strategic planning that we talked about before and begin prepping the dialogue so that when something happens, you can turn to your team and say, hey, this is sort of where we're going now. They'll rally based on who they are. So it's more about who your team is than what you do. And so then I think the next piece is you have to have the parts assembled in the right places. You can have all the ingredients for a great apple pie, but if you don't assemble them in the right places and cook them in the right manner, then it doesn't turn out. And so Really, as leaders, build relationships with your people, understand who they are and how to align them. And sometimes, I mean, we've had so many situations here where uh, like, like 2020, there was a whole class of people, and this is a little embarrassing to admit, that I wasn't really aware existed until the shit hit the fan. 
Mm-hmm. And then the people that I thought were my go-to people maybe weren't so go-to because we had to unwind all this old stuff, these social contracts. And this generation behind stepped in the gap and transformed our business. And then our awards ceremony this year, like there were names after name after name that were game changers that a year ago, I wasn't really sure. I mean, there's you know, a couple hundred employees, so I wasn't sure where they fit into the whole thing. And so aligning the people and, and parts in the right places is, is critical to that. Let me follow up with this here real quick. Have you always had this mindset when it comes to business, right? It, it seems like you have really strong values, right? You're, you're very set on certain things. Like you, you have that social aspect, you're financially conservative, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, and mindful that you, you know, you invest in your people. It seems like you have a really good head on your shoulders. I'm sure you've grown over time. You've progressed, your mindset has shifted, but have you always been like this or does something like break you down one day where you're like, okay, that's enough. When I have my own thing, I'm going to do it like this. Or tell me more about this, this, uh, this yeah. that you've developed. Yeah. So I started my career at Marriott as a dishwasher, right? And so Marriott taught me how to walk and talk and chew gum. They're the military of the hotel industry until being told what to do didn't work, right? Mm-hmm. And then I went to work for Ritz-Carlton and Ritz-Carlton in Hawaii, of all places, opened up a whole new spectrum of, it was when they won the Malcolm and Baldridge Award and you know, enlivens the senses and still well being create a connection between you and the guest. Then uh, I jumped to the agency side and it became all about me. And I think that the catalyst point there was there's such, such a thing as having enough and not wanting more and kind of eating yourself alive. And so I, I started getting tired of living the facade of uh, being a good guy in business. And that's kind of when I had that you know, a radical faith encounter. And then I realized out of that, that it wasn't meant for me to live for me. It was meant for me to live for other people. And in that birthed this whole new paradigm of businesses doing good by doing well and sowing in the next generation entrepreneurs. And then one thing that we haven't really talked about is the art of giving them a passing lane. So it was fine. You know, I, I ran and built businesses all based on me. Now we're running and and building businesses based on other people. But there's something about the power of not so much what an old man knows, but what a young man's discovering. And, sure. and, and the art of giving Jonathan a lane. And we're at that point in our relationship right now of just, I'm now pulling behind him and I'm drafting his race car. And it's a beautiful thing. But there's a lot of humility in that process because you've got to let them make mistakes. You've got to let them crash into the rails. But that is the art of turning it over to the next generation. My dreams are to create hundreds of businesses that last hundreds of years based on these principles. Sure. And so, but it all comes, comes at that crucible moment when I had to die to myself and live for other people and other things. I love that. That's so powerful and so inspirational. Well, Stan, I could tell you, uh, it's super cool to talk to you and, and hear about your journey and your philosophies. Um, a lot of lessons learned here for me. So th- this has been a, a fantastic interview. So congratulations, what you've accomplished, what you've Thank built you. with your team. Uh, Jonathan, for you, how exciting. You know, you're you're fresh into this. You're very passionate about what you're doing. You're ambitious. You're very smart. I wish you all, all the best as you continue to build out your practice and your business and your future is very bright. Thank you so much. And, and thanks for having us on and, and Anna. Yeah, Yeah. a real honor. Really appreciate it. Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best.